And Lord, we do. We praise you tonight for your greatness. Lord, you are holy. You are majestic. Lord, you are on your throne, full of majesty and glory. And Lord, we thank you that you have chosen to make yourself known to us, to draw near to us. And Lord, I I just know tonight that your heart is toward everybody here in this room. And I pray this evening as we look at your word, as we consider the times that we are living in, that you would enlighten us, that you would instruct us, that you would stir us up. Lord, I pray that you would overlook my inadequacies as a teacher. And Lord, tonight that you would work and move and speak in this place. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, you can be seated. Welcome to our spring prophecy update. And for everybody joining us online, we're glad that you are with us as well. If you have your Bibles tonight, hopefully you do, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's going to be kind of our starting text for tonight, and then there'll be some other passages that we put on the screen. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And tonight we're going to look at the prophetic implications of socialism. And I want to just be the first to say that I am in no way an expert on this subject. I know that there are many, many layers to it when you talk about socialism and Marxism and then neo-Marxism and cultural Marxism. And, and my objective tonight is not to really dive into every aspect of socialism, but to more look at it on a general perspective Because I do believe that socialism is going to be the predominant political philosophy on the earth when the tribulation begins. And I'm not alone in uh, that idea. But I think that socialism really is tailor-made for the Antichrist. And in our prophecy update back in November, in fact, how many of you were here at our very first one in November? Um, You remember we talked about the spirit of the Antichrist, and we looked at Revelation chapter 13, and everything that it it tells us that the, the government, the the philosophy, the rule, the reign of the Antichrist, what that is going to be like. And, and so we looked at the characteristics of his rule in really an in-depth way in Revelation chapter 13. If you missed that, you can go back online and watch that. I would encourage you to do so. But we talked about how the world is currently right now being set up for when that person is going to come into power. And when the Bible describes that he comes into power, that he is going to rule, and what his rule is going to look like, many aspects of it will resemble what we know as the philosophy of socialism. So tonight I want us to consider this philosophy and how the world is currently being taken in that direction. But I want to begin tonight by looking at what Paul said here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse 1. He says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves. Check. Lovers of money. Check. Boasters, proud, blasphemers. I mean, we can just go on, right? This is the world that we're living in today. Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. 
and from such people turn away. I want to read that to you again. It'll be on the screen, but I want to look at it the way the message puts it. I'm not a, always a, a real big fan of the message, but I really like the way uh, it describes this passage. It says, don't be naive. There are difficult times ahead. As the end approaches, people are going to be self-absorbed, money-hungry, self-promoting, stuck-up, profane, contemptuous of parents, crude, coarse, dog-eat-dog, unbending, slanders, impulsively wild, savage, cynical, treacherous, ruthless, bloated windbags. I love that one. (laughs) Addicted to lust and allergic to God. They'll make a show of religion, but behind the scenes, they're animals. Stay clear of these people. I think that is a very good description of the day and age in which we're living in. What we're seeing happening in so many parts of society, not just here in America, but really all over the world. The way the Amplified Version puts verse 1 is this way, but understand this, that the last days, in the last days, dangerous times of great distress and trouble will come, difficult days that will be hard to bear. And you know, I think there's a lot of people, probably some of you tonight, who are like, yeah, the things that we are seeing, the things that we are going through, they are hard to bear. And I think one of the things that we, we just find ourselves at times thinking is, where is this all going? How far can it go? How much worse can it get? You know, Jesus described the days leading up to his coming that they would be like the days of Noah. In Matthew chapter 24, he said this, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So what were the days of Mo- Noah like? Well, in in uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, we're told this. Describes the days of Noah in this way. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The people of Noah's day had grown evil. It's why God had decided that he had had enough and that he was going to destroy the earth. Think about this. And man in it with the great flood. But he set Noah on this mission to build this gigantic boat that we know as the ark. It took Noah, this is hard to fathom, 120 years to build the ark. Now picture that, okay? I mean, he had to assemble a lot of wood. I mean, it was a big deal. Okay, 120 years. And the Bible tells us that during that time, it called Noah a preacher of righteousness. And can you imagine kind of what it looked like? There's Noah with his sons. And they've got their hammers and they've got this wood and people are coming by and they're going like, Noah, hey, what are you guys doing? We're building a boat. Now, you've got to understand, there had never been rain yet, all right? And they weren't very close to any water, and this was a giant boat. So can you imagine if people are thinking like, Noah has lost his mind, you know? Why are you building a boat? Well, water's going to come out of the sky. God's going to flood the earth. You better turn to him, or you're going to drown. Can you imagine Imagine the Snickers. I mean, I, I, I picture it in my mind. I have a pretty good imagination, I think. And I, I think probably the first couple of months, it was like, hey, it's Saturday. What do you want to do today? Let's go check out Noah, you know. Let's go make fun of Noah, you know. Let's go laugh at Noah and his sons and what they're, they're doing. But this went on for 120 years. I mean, it was, you know, big news, probably on all the channels for the first few weeks, but after 120 years, it was like a knucklehead over there until it started raining. But what was interesting, though, about that time is that the people, as Noah preached, they ignored him. They made fun of him. 
They were so indifferent that they did not understand what was happening until it was too late. And the heedlessness of that people is going to be duplicated in the last days. And I think we're seeing that mindset even now. It is that type of day and age where people ignore warnings and become oblivious to the evil agenda going on in their day. So we saw last week, San Diego, they met The leaders in San Diego met to redefine, and they did, the definition of a woman to include a man. Now, when that came out, you you would think that there would have been thousands of people showing up to protest, like, what in the world is going on with you guys? Nope. There were some, but not... San Diego in mass. Why? Because we're indifferent. It's like, you know, ah, whatever. That's kind of our mentality. And then California Assembly passes a bill that allows a parent to kill a baby 28 days after the baby has been born. And you would think that we would say, no way. No way. Yeah. <laughs> That's not happening. But it gets passed. Because so many people are like, whatever, whatever. And indifference leads to false ideologies that begin to just creep into our society. And this is the mindset of so many. As long as it doesn't mess up my life and my routine, as long as it doesn't affect me economically, hey, I really don't care. And you know what happens is we become, you've heard the analogy, the story of the, you know, the frog in the kettle. They put the frog in the kettle and he's liking the water and then they're slowly and slowly and slowly turning up the heat, boiling the frog, and he never jumps out of the water because he just is getting more used to it and more used to it and more used to it until he becomes frog soup. How is, how is society negatively transformed? We're in the process of that happening right now. And why isn't, you know, we talked about why the United States isn't in Bible prophecy. And, I, and I've told you, I used to always think that it was because of the rapture. You know, the rapture is going to take us out. We'll no longer be a superpower. And I still hope that that's the answer. I really do. But the more I see the way things are going, I think we're just heading down this path as a country where we are going to just destroy ourselves internally. That's the road, guys, that we are on. I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but barring the Lord just moving and working and and pouring out his spirit and us seeing another great awakening, which I am praying for, that's the direction that we are heading in. So tonight, I want us to consider the following. I want to, first of all, define what is socialism. I want us to look at why is socialism, socialism attractive to so many people. I want to talk about the roots of socialism, the characteristics of socialism that we are seeing right now in our culture, even though people would say we're not a socialist society here. And then I want to talk about the destruction that happens by socialism, and then we'll finish up by seeing how we as Christians can today stand and combat the socialism that we see in our culture. So that's kind of my goal as we go through this tonight. Does that sound okay? All right. So first of all, what is socialism? Well, this is according to the World Socialist Party of the United States. Figured might as well take it from the horse's mouth. The establishment of a system of society based on the common ownership and democratic control of the means and instruments for producing and distributing wealth by and in the interest of the society as a whole. Sounds good, right? That sounds like, hey, that sounds like a good thing. But socialists believe if you break that down, 
that the world's means of production, including infrastructure, farms, factories, energy, natural resources, medicines, and, and you know, just everything else should be under the control of the, here's the big word, quote unquote, the people. In a free market system, these materials are usually controlled by companies or individuals, but in socialist countries, they are owned, again, by the quote-unquote people. But therein lies the problem. There's no way to make decisions based on that loose concept of the people. How many of you have ever been in, in a part of a committee of, say, more than 10 people that didn't have a leader. Okay. Any of you ever been a part of something like that? How'd it go? <laughs> that usually doesn't work out very well, right? When I was a youth pastor, actually here at this church, a long time ago, back started in 1985. And um, we were involved on high school campuses all over North County here. And it was pretty amazing what the Lord was doing on several of those campuses, especially at Rancho Buena Vista. But then something happened years later into all of this you know, work that God was doing on campuses where the school came up with this rule that if you were going to have a Christian club on a campus, it needed to be student-led, Okay. So they wanted to take the youth pastors that were involved out of the picture. So it needed to be student-led, and that wasn't such a bad idea, but the problem was, and I saw this over and over again, is that the students weren't mature enough to lead, and they, uh, in many, many cases, not in all, but in most of the cases, I would say, they didn't know what they were doing. The clubs that went well had an advisor, that was a teacher, and that that teacher helped the students come up with their plan and learn how to execute it. But sometimes I saw where you'd have an advisor, maybe some of you who were in some of these clubs experienced this, you'd have an advisor that had an agenda. And this advisor, you know, they say, this is kind of what they wanted this club to look like, and it ended up just being weird, you know? Instead of being something that was really drawing kids in and drawing them to Christ, it became kind of like, there's where the weird kids go at lunchtime, you know? It was that type of thing. And many times there would also be an issue where you'd have these students that were leading and they couldn't get on the same page or they, you know, had a certain agenda that only appealed to a certain group. And so these, these um, clubs were, ended up being really, really small and people didn't come. Well, that's, things, that's how things work when there isn't a leader. I mean, even here at our church, and I get to serve here at our church with a great team. Of people. But I would tell you this that if, if I put it out to our team, what they think should be the direction of our church, I can tell you there'd be five or ten different ideas because everybody's passionate about certain things. So it takes somebody, a leader, to listen and kind of dissect and bring everything together and implement it. So the concept of socialism sounds great. Hey, the people are going to lead themselves, but it really isn't. It's very unrealistic. It's not very realistic at all. So here's what happens under socialism. The government becomes the sole authority and the controller of the means of production. And unfortunately, governments are controlled by specific people who are flawed people and sinful people and those people who are entirely susceptible to corruption and greed and selfishness and lust and vindictiveness and violence and the overwhelming desire for authority. You've heard the quote that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And that is true. And more power, the more power, or as more power flows to government, the handful at the top become dictatorial. And that has been the predominant history of socialism. Now, despite the negative history behind socialism, a 2020 poll here in the United States showed that 40% of Americans had a favorable view 
of socialism. And 47% of millennials and 49% of Generation Z viewed socialism favorably, favorably. And you remember back in 2020, Bernie Sanders almost got elected as the Democratic candidate, and he is a senator from Vermont who says, hey, I'm a socialist, and everybody knows it. And he almost got elected. How crazy is that? But in addition to Sanders, recent elections have seen record numbers of socialist candidates win roles as representatives in state legislatures and in Congress. Notable among them is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who in 2018 became the youngest congresswoman in history. AOC, as she's called, is an avowed member of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States. And given her age and her massive following, many believe that she's going to run one day for the president of the United States. And that's a sobering thought. Given her stated goals of ending capitalism and implementing the same socialist agenda that failed in countries like Venezuela. Let's talk about Venezuela for a minute. Venezuela at one time was the wealthiest nation in South America. With a per capita capita income of its citizens that was greater than those of China and Japan and was rivaling that of here in the United States. But during that time, Venezuela enjoyed religious liberty, political freedom, personal dignity, and economic opportunity. But when oil prices crashed in 1980, then again in 1990, their economy experienced a dip. That that dip became a dive in 1998, and it was then that the the Venezuelan people elected Cesar Chavez to be their president, and he immediately took things in the way of socialism, and it really ended up destroying that country. Today, Venezuela is on the verge of anarchy, and people are trying to get out of that country as fast as they possibly can. But when we look at the history of socialism across the the ages, why do so many people like Sanders and AOC and, and, you know, actors like Sean Penn and Danny Glover and so many others, why why do they like it? Why why do they think that this is such a great idea? And I think this is one of the reasons. It, it, It really plays upon our American arrogance, that there are so many in our government that think in this way. The right people just haven't tried this yet. And we're the right ones. We're going to be the ones that makes this work. And socialism is attractive to many people because of its exaggerated promises. In his book, We Will Not Be Silenced, great book, by the way, author Erwin Lutzer put it this way, socialism promises hope and change, income equality, racial harmony, and justice based on secular values rather than Judeo-Christian morality. It is known for professing inclusion rather than exclusion and promoting sexual freedom rather than what they view as restrictive sexual ethics of the Bible. It is not stifled by allegedly narrow religious traditions, but espouses progressive ideas that are deemed worthy of an enlightened future. Note that phrase, that the idea of professing inclusion rather than exclusion, unless you believe the Bible is the ultimate authority on morality, then you are excluded because you don't fit into their system. It's cancel culture happening. They cancel you out. But let's talk about the roots of socialism because, to be honest, it's kind of scary. The roots of socialism trace back to Karl Marx. And to understand socialism, we must begin there. We must understand him. And when you understand who he was and what he believed, then you're able to kind of get a sense of, of what's happening. Everything that we see happening kind of traces back to this guy. In 2020, 
Paul Kengor wrote a book that was titled The Devil and Karl Marx, Communism's Long March of Death, Deception, and Infiltration. And according to Kengor, Marx was a tyrant, a racist, and a misogynist radical who hated God and wanted to see the world burn. Marx wasn't just a hater of God, but he was a cheerleader of the devil. People in his own family believed that he was demon-possessed. One biographer described him like this. He had the devil's view of the world and the devil's malignity. Sometimes he seemed to know that he was accomplishing the works of evil. On one occasion, his own son wrote a letter to him entitled this way, Dear Mr. Devil. And Marx's partner, Frederick Ingalls, declared that 10,000 devils had Marx by the hair. In 1849, one, one year after publishing his crowning work, The Communist Manifesto, Marx was evicted by his landlord. The landlord was just fed up with his filthiness. He, quoted, he was quoted as saying that Karl Marx drank too much, smoked too much, never exercised, suffered from warts and boils due to lack of washing, and he stunk. His apartment was a disaster. It was unclean, everything was broken, and everything was falling apart. And this is the guy that people want to listen to and think that, hey, this is, we should listen to him for how the world should be run. It's crazy. His wife, Jenny, was so miserable in their marriage, she wanted to die. It was a wish she said she pondered daily. His daughters, Jenny and Laura, fulfilled their mother's wish. Jenny poisoned herself when she was just 43. And in a death pact with her husband, Laura also committed suicide when she was 66. Marx himself died in despair on March 14, 1883. And just before his death, he wrote to his friend Ingalls and said this, How pointless and empty is life, but how desirable. What a weirdo. Right? He was buried in Highgate Cemetery, considered to be the center of Satanism in London. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because I think it's important to understand that behind this philosophy, I think it's clear that there is a demonic influence. This is a demonic idealism. That's coming really straight from the pit of hell. This is who's at the root of socialism, someone who brought terror, heartache, and grief to himself and to his own family. Marxism is totalitarian. The term totalitarian was first used by supporters of fascist dictator Benito Mussolini, who summed it up this way, everything within the state and nothing outside the state and nothing against the state. A writer by the name of Hannah Ardent, the foremost scholar on totalitarianism, put it this way, a totalitarian society is one in which an ideology seeks to displace all prior traditions and institutions with the goal of bringing all aspects of society under the control of that ideology. A totalitarian state is one that aspires to nothing less than defining and controlling reality. Truth is whatever the rulers decide that it is. So here's some characteristics of Marxism that we are seeing in our culture today. Marxism wants to rewrite history. Marxism wants to write God out of our history. And we've been seeing that happening for a long time. Marxism wants to portray our founding fathers. They're they're no longer being portrayed as as men who sought God, who believed in God, who, who looked to the Bible to direct them in the founding of our country. And according to author Millen, uh, Kendera, the book of laughter and forgetting, wrote this, the first step in liquidating a people is to erase its memory, destroy its books, its culture, and its history. Then have someone write new books, manufacture a new culture, invent a new history, and before long, the nation will begin to forget what it is and what it was. Is that not the day and age that we are living in right now? So socialists want us to forget, but it's interesting 
God wants us to remember. Do you know in the Old Testament, God mentions the word remember 164 times? Remember this. Remember this. When the children of Israel are crossing through the Jordan River, remember what God has them do? When they get to the other side, he has them stack up 12 stones of rocks for all the the, the tribes of Israel. And it's interesting that, that he had them do one stack of rocks outside the river and another inside the river. So there's a public memorial, but when the water crossed over, back over in the middle of the river, the, the rock memorial that was set up in the middle was covered up. And so you could say that was a private memorial. So there's a private and a public memorial, but it was all meant so that God say, when your children come and see these rocks, they say, what's this about? That you can tell them what I did. I want you to remember. And over and over and over again, God was always seeking to want to get his people to remember. He had them have memorials because he knows how prone we are to forget. But those who want to change our country and want to infiltrate their Marxist socialistic ideology, we need to understand this. They're in it for the long haul. And they've been in it for a long time. And this is another problem I think that we have. We are so prone, especially in this day and age, is we want everything fast. We want everything to happen now. And we don't realize that those who are seeking to bring this type of thing into our country, they've been working at this for a very, very long time. They're like marathon runners. And when the rest of us prefer prefer the short sprint... I want it now mentality. There, keep pressing on. One such leader that emerged in the early 1900s after Marx died was Antonio Gramsci, an Italian Marxist who put forth this strategy. This is the early 1900s, okay? But I want you to think about how this is being played out today. You want to change the thinking of a society? He said, control the robes. Of society. What do you mean by that? Control the robes. Well, the, who wore the robes? Judges, professors, politicians, and pastors. His mentality, his strategy was leverage those people in positions in order to educate and mobilize the masses against the leadership or ideology that is currently in power. Use the educational system, the political system, the judicial system in order to overturn the, the current cultural, cultural ideology that is in place. Does that sound familiar? Is that not what we have been seeing happening in our culture for quite some time, in our schools, in our universities, in the halls of government, and in the courts, and even in many churches? They've been turning against the Judeo-Christian values our country was founded on. Well, after Gramsci, a group came along called the Frankfurt Group that originated in Frankfurt, Germany. It was a group of German philosophers. But in 1935, they moved across the Atlantic into New York, into Columbia University, and this was their strategy, control the media. Control the media. The Frankfurt School of Strategy was this, reduce everything to discussions of race, class, gender, and sex. And notice, I want you to notice how they use both of those because according to their philosophy, sex and gender are two different things. They say sex has to do with your, with your biology, whereas gender has to do with your social construct. So your gender doesn't necessarily have... Uh, you know, isn't equated to your sex. And so that's how you get transgender. And that's what they infiltrated. But their whole strategy was control the media. So Gramsci controlled the robes, controlled the professors, the judges, those in government, those in, in politics, Control the, control the voices, in other words. The Frankfurt group controlled the, control the media. And that's how you turn a society. And they've been at this for a long, long time. And they have been getting great strides in our day and age. So this ideology and plan to turn a country away from Christian values is strategic. It's calculated. 
And what we're seeing happen in our country more rapidly right now, we need to understand, has been the norm in Europe, and it's been the norm in Canada for a few decades now. In fact, they say up in Canada, you want to know what you guys are going to become? Just look at us, because that's where you're headed. And it's, it's true. We see these crazy things happening, you know, in, in Canada. You know, they're, they're, in, in Canada, you cannot stand in a pulpit. They, it's against the law. You could go to jail and say that homosexuality is a sin. Pastors can go to jail for saying that. They want to silence. So when that comes here, and I say that adultery and sexual immorality and homosexuality is a sin, and I go to jail, you have to come visit me, okay? <laughs> all right? <laughs> Even from Tennessee, bro, you got to come and visit me, all right? So, um, Let's talk about some characteristics of Marxism that we're seeing in our culture today. Marxism is divisive. It wants to cause division among the classes. Really, it wants to put the people into two classes, the rich and the poor. That's it. That's all they're wanting to do. It wants to cut out the middle class, the lower class. It's just the rich, those who are in power, and the poor. It also wants to cause division in race. Critical race theory has its roots in Marxism. In fact, I was blown away by by this. An article in the New York Post, of all places, said this. Critical race theory is fast becoming America's new institutional orthodoxy. This was just last year. The article went on to explain that critical race theory is an academic discipline formulated in the 1990s and built on the intellectual framework of identity-based Marxism. It has increasingly become the default ideology of our public institutions over the past decade. It has been ejected into government agencies, public school systems, teacher training programs, and corporate human resource departments control the ropes. It's exactly what's happening. Exactly what Gramsci said in the early 1900s is happening right now. Critical race theorists like to use the word equity because they realize that the phrase Marxism or neo-Marxism would be a hard sell. But equity, on the other hand, sounds non-threatening and is easily confused with the American principle of equality. We like to talk about equality, but there is a vast distinction that we need to realize. You see, critical race theorists explicitly reject equality, the principle proclaimed in the Declaration of Independence, defended in the Civil War, and codified into law with the 14th and 15th Amendment. They they reject that. To them, equality represents mere non-discrimination and provides camouflage for white supremacy and oppression. A UCLA professor, law professor, and critical race theorist, Cheryl Harris, has proposed suspending private property rights, seizing land and wealth, and redistributing them along the racial lines. You know, years ago, we were doing a lot of ministry in Zimbabwe. Remember Zimbabwe? Man, that country was thriving. And then... Mugavi, I think that's how you say his name, came into power. And everything changed immediately. I knew, I was friends with people who were living there and um, they had you know, farms and stuff that they were, were uh, running. And, and they were um, Brits who had come from Britain but had been born in Zimbabwe. So they, that was their culture. I knew several pastors that were there. And, and there was one particular guy that I knew that... They came in and forced his family out of their house. They seized his house, just like that. And he came back driving in his Jeep and asked if he could go in and get some of their pictures and you know, family valuables, and he had a box. And they said, yeah, go ahead. You can go in and fill up your box. And he came walking back out with all these, you know, just mementos and things that were important to he and his family. He went to get in the Jeep and an armed, armed guard said, hey, what are you doing? He goes, I'm just you know, getting ready to go. He goes, you can go, but the Jeep stays. And that's how it was there. 
And the problem was, is Mugabe puts all these people who didn't know how to run farms, didn't know how to, how to do that type of thing, and suddenly he puts them in the role of they're going to be the farmers and the ones who are leading this country, and the country fell apart. And it's still a disaster to this day. And that's what happens. Marxism wants to destroy the original, or let me, let me go back up. Marxism wants to dismantle core institutions. That's why the whole idea of defunding the police, it's a Marxist idea. Just come in and, hey, it's an institution we need to tear, we tear down. We need to tear down so that we can build back up. But how did that go? Here's some recent efforts, uh, effects of the efforts to defund the police. In Minneapolis, murders rose by a mind-numbing 46%. In Portland, Oregon, murders more than tripled, and the Los Angeles Police Department reported a 38% increase in murders during that time. Marxism wants to destroy the original picture of the family. Again, Lutzer wrote this. In Marxism, the family is perceived as a unit in which wives are suppressed by their husband, children are suppressed by their parents. And he says, these clusters of oppression have to be broken up. Mothers need to leave their homes and join the workforce. But once people realize that they've been duped by this philosophy and they rise up and they want to take it back, then Marxism gets deadly. And in a book called The Black Book of Communism that chronicled the death toll in the 20th century due to Marxism, it'll be on the screen. Here's the results. In Latin America, 150,000 deaths. In Eastern Europe, 1 million deaths. In Vietnam, 1 million deaths. In Africa, 1.7 million deaths. In Cambodia, 2 million deaths. In North Korea, 2 million deaths. In In the USSR, 20 million deaths. In China, 65 million deaths. So when the Antichrist comes into power in the tribulation, he is going to initiate this one-world economic system, this one-world religious system, this one-world government. He's going to be preaching this idea of, hey, let's be one. We can think the same and act the same and believe the same. He's going to say, hey, you can't buy or sell unless you take my mark. And anybody that stands up against him, they're going to be put to death. And the world is being programmed right now as we speak. In the name of socialism and these type of ideas to accept this system. That's going to be put into play. And I think it's it's inevitable But here's the question that I want to kind of end with tonight is this. How do we as believers combat this ideology? Because even though it's inevitable, I think, that this type, we know that this type of system is going to be put into place in the last days, in the tribulation time, when the Antichrist comes into power. I believe in the book of Revelation, literally. I believe in the book of Daniel, literally. So I, I believe these things are, are coming. They're going to happen. And should the Lord tarry, we're going to keep moving in this direction. So what do we do? Do we just sit back and go, okay, well, it's going to happen. I hope Jesus comes tomorrow, you know, because it's getting really bad. No, no, no. I think that we have a responsibility. So what do we as a church, what are we to do? I want to give you five things, and then we're going to wrap this up tonight. Number one, we need to stand on the Bible. You see, the Bible affirms the dignity of work. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. And the fact that those who refuse to work should not eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. The Bible affirms private property in Exodus 22, verse 7, and condemns theft in Exodus 20, verse 15, and covetousness in Exodus 20, verse 17. The Bible affirms saving. The Bible affirms being good stewards. The Bible affirms land ownership. That's okay to own things. Socialism says, no, 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 we want, you know, everything belongs to everybody. No, no, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible affirms investing. 
In Matthew 25, verse 27, the Bible teaches that, that the laborer is worthy of his wages. So we need to stand on the Bible. That's number one. We need to take the way that we're going to approach things in according to what the Bible says and not what some philosophy says. Number two, how do we as believers combat the ideology of socialism? We live out the gospel. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, this is what we read of the early church. I think this is going to be on the screen. It says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship, in breaking in bread and in prayers. And then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now a lot of times people who are socialists, they read that and go, see, see, they practiced socialism in the early church. No, no, no. What you need to understand, what was happening in the early church was voluntary sharing. It wasn't forced. And the reason that it happened was this. You have to know the context. That in the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell, Peter gets up and preaches. The Pentecost was one of the three festivals of the Jews that they were required to go to. So you have millions of Jewish people who have traveled great distance from their homelands to come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And it's during this time that the Holy Spirit falls on the 120 that is in the upper room. And, and all of a sudden they begin to speak in tongues and a crowd gathers and Peter stands up and he preaches. And all of these people, if you read the the passage there, it says it mentions people from all these different places all over that, that Middle Eastern area that they had come and they end up receiving Jesus. They end up believing. These are Jewish people that believed in God, had no idea who Jesus was, and suddenly through the preaching of, of Peter, they're like, Jesus is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And God does this radical thing in their lives, and they don't want to go home. They're like, this is amazing what is happening. So the early church began to live communally out of necessity. Because you had all these people who were away from their homes who didn't want to go home. They wanted to stay and be a part of this new thing that was happening. So the people who did live in Jerusalem started opening up their homes and other people were renting homes and people were living together and they're sharing everything out of necessity and voluntarily. That's the gospel. That's living out the gospel. Socialism forces that. You know, when the war broke out in Ukraine, and all of a sudden, people in Ukraine, women and children primarily, are fleeing the country in droves by the hundreds of thousands, or tens of thousands, I mean, of people. And somehow a door was opened up for people to get out of the country and fly to Mexico and cross into the United States. And my good friend, Phil Metzger, so proud of that guy in his church. Phil pastored in Hungary for 20 years, so he's very familiar with that area of the world and the churches that we have I think 20 or so Calvary chapels, or 12 I think it is actually, in Ukraine. And they opened up their church. They started bringing people across the border, thousands upon thousands. He ends up getting open doors to go and meet with officials in in, uh, San Diego, and then California, and then... Um, you know, congressmen and senators, and, and, and gets, he ends up getting the, the state gets involved in helping all, but it started with the church leading the way, living out the gospel. Hey, these people are in need. We need to help them. It was so amazing. He actually got interviewed by Lester Holmes on uh, you know, that television program and, and is, was featured in a program they did or it's coming out, I think maybe this coming Saturday or something, on 185 ins- inspirational people. And Phil's going to be a part of that and his church is going to be a part of that. But that's living out the gospel. 
That's saying, hey, here's a need and we're going to meet it. We're going to take that step of faith and we're going to live. That's what we are to do. So number one, we stand on the Bible. Number two, we live out the gospel. Number three, we need to pray. We need to be praying. Paul wrote these words in 1 Timothy 2. Therefore, I exert first, exhort first of all that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and giving and thanks be made for all men. We like that part, right? And then he says, for kings. That means Newsom. I mean, he's not a king. He thinks he is. But, but uh, he's a governor. But for kings. For Biden. For Harris. For all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We need to be praying. We need to be praying for our leaders. We need to be praying for our country. We need to be praying for our communities here. You know, sometimes we can get so focused on the big picture that we fail to realize that right in our backyard is oftentimes where we can make the biggest impact. Think of it like cell towers, you know, like Verizon. And what do they do? They put cell towers up in these, you know, different places. And the more they get, the bigger, the better the coverage is. And that's how our influence can be. We need to pray. Pray for our leaders. Number four, how do we, as believers, combat the ideology of socialism? We preach the gospel. We preach the gospel. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then he said this, Him we preach. Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Jesus. As the world gets crazier, friends, we need to keep preaching and pointing people to Jesus. Amen? That he's the answer. Because no matter what happens and what politicians and, and people in power put you know, before us, it's not going to work. It's not going to be the answer. Jesus, he's the answer. For the void and the longing and the thirst that's in the heart of men. And finally, what do we do? We need to stand up and we need to stand out. I'll close with this. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. The city that is set upon a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Isn't it interesting? That the one who said, I'm the light of the world, then says to you and I, you guys are the light of the world. Why? Because he's shining in us. He wants to be shining in us. And light is meant to shine in the darkness. How do we do that? It's when we stand for righteousness. That's how we shine in the darkness. It's when we stand up for what is right. Well, we stand up for what is true. And it's interesting, Jesus said in John chapter 3 that the darkness hates the light. Why? Because it exposes, the light exposes the evil deeds of darkness. When we stand up and say, hey, that's not right. When we stand up and say, hey, this is what the Bible says. When we stand for righteousness, sure there's going to be pushback. And I think it's going to get more, even more intense. But we need to stand up and we need to stand out in the society. But I love this picture that Jesus gives of being salt. And you've heard me talk about this before. Salt is only effective when it gets out of the salt shaker, right? Salt does no good when it's just sitting there like, you know, you have the prettiest little salt shaker, you know, on your table, but if it, if it doesn't get out, it's of no good. Jesus wants us to be salt. What does that mean? Well, salt in that society had a few main uses. 
It was used, first of all, as a preserving element. They didn't have refrigeration, so they would pack their meat in salt to keep it fresh. You and I, as we stand for truth and live for Jesus, we become a preserving element in our society. When our, when our society keeps going down a path that is going against our Judeo-Christian values that our country has been founded on, and we stand and we for, for what is the, the truth and we live that out, we can become a preserving element to keep us from going too far down that road. When we stand up and raise our voice, when we go to a school board meeting, for instance, and say, we don't want you teaching this in our schools. We're being salt. Salt was also used as a healing element. They would put salt on wounds, and it would help it heal. When I, when I played baseball in high school, how many of you guys played baseball when you were in high school? Anybody? At my school, I, I don't know, you know, some of the schools, maybe it wasn't this way, but we had that red clay. Did you guys have that red clay? You know, that, and you ever slide on that? I, I made the mistake one day, because I'm a knucklehead. Um, I hit the ball into right center, and I'm rounding first base, heading towards second, and I know that I've got a triple, you know, in the, I'm rounding second, and I see the third baseman is getting ready. So I come in, and I do this wonderful hook slide, you know what that is, look it up. But I, you know, sliding in. Problem was, I was wearing shorts. <laughs> My whole leg, just like from here to there, was just all, just, it's like ripped apart flesh. So you know what I did? Every chance I got, I went to the beach because of the salt water. Hey, mom, I got to go to the beach today. My leg's really bugging me. You know, and I go down to the beach and I'm catching waves and the salt water in the ocean it helps. It's a healing element. Tyler suffers from allergies. He's always stuffed up. And I tell him, you got to tell your wife, you got to go surfing because that water, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to help you, you know. <laughs> Does the trick. It was a healing. And that's what we can be. In a society that's just gotten all messed up and gone wrong, that we can be this healing agent is being salt. And salt was also used in the same way we use it so often today to enhance the flavor of food. And again, as we are seeking to be salt, we can be. In the midst of people around us who are confused and angry and upset and fearful, we can be these, these, this element in society as we let Jesus pour us out by being, listen, here's the key word, being intentional about interfacing, getting to know people around us that don't know Jesus and people who are freaking out as we are seeking to be, you know, get close to them and draw near them and befriend them. We can be that flavor enhancing element in their lives so that when you leave the room or you leave a time of being with them, they feel refreshed. They feel hopeful. And they come to a place where they're like, I want to know what you have. And so this is what Jesus calls us to be. I think it's inevitable. This is the direction that our world is going. And I think we need to stand and say, as long as we're here, not on my watch. We're going to stand. We're going to do what we need to do and not accept. The, the worst thing we can do is just bury our heads in the sand. The worst thing that we can do is, why I've, I've said this last time, I'm going to keep pounding this in your head. These prophecy updates are not meant to produce in any of us a sense of escapism. Oh, the world's falling apart. Jesus, just come back today. I want him to come back. And, and there's days when I feel that way, but... It's not escapism he wants from us, it's activism. To be salt and light and say, Lord, how do you want me to make a difference in my sphere of influence? We need to pray. We need to stand. We need to preach. Amen?
Let's pray. Father, thank you for each and every one of these just precious men and women who are here tonight, those watching online. And Lord, it's easy to see how this strategy of going after the robes, going after the media, trying to rewrite history, all of these things that was a part of this mindset laid out clear back in the 1800s. We're seeing it come into play today. But Lord, we want to be salt and light. We want to be those who are seeking to be active as we press into you. That we want to make an impact, Lord. Show us how. Lord, I pray that everybody here, that you would just, that we would be praying and that you would be answering. Lord, show us how to make an impact in our specific sphere of influence. And so I pray, God, that you'd bless my brothers and sisters. Thank you for our time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.